Thank you so much for checking out the Connect Church podcast. We hope you're encouraged and inspired by this week's sermon. So let's jump right in and check out this week's message. Well, hey, good morning, Connect Church. Man, wasn't it good for our team to lead us out this morning? Hey, a wonderful job. Man, it is so good to be back here at Connect Church. And I want to say this as well. And happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. Man, today is, is our day. Get celebrated a little bit as we make much of Jesus. I want to share a picture that uh, means a lot to me and really I think is a picture of what fatherhood is, is all about. Being a dad is all about. Look, look at this right here. Isn't that good? Isn't it, isn't it powerful? Hey, listen, uh, today is not the day where we celebrate the perfect dad. If you're a perfect dad, you ought to have celebration every day. But today is the day that we honor dads who are doing the absolute best they can. I just want to say, man, thank you. And I'm proud of you dads out there. Keep it up. Not only do your kids need you, our families need you. Our church needs you. And our communities need you, Dad. I was reminded of how important it is. You know, I've got four kids, and this is a dad handing his young son a copy of the Word of God. Hey, just a reminder, there's an enemy out there to destroy our kids. And yet, for godly moms and dads who stand in the way of the enemy, do everything they can to point their kids to Jesus. So dads... Thank you on this day. You know, I got to think in a real great illustration of what just being a dad is all about. On the last night of camp, on Thursday night, we had a series of really bad storms roll through on the panhandle of Florida. And uh, in fact, as we went into worship, we're in just, a, uh, just an open room, an ocean, open worship room. And, and as we stand in there, all of a sudden, um, a lot of our phones started pinging that there was a tornado warning meaning there were active tornadoes in the area. Me and Kyle and Pastor David, we ran outside and into this storm, and we're, we're looking at our building, making sure there's not a, a better building to usher our kids into if we have to, and realize the best, best thing for us is just to hunker down where we are if one falls from the sky. And, and we kind of checked that out for a while, and then I went back inside the worship service, and I, I decided to say, hey, men, Come here real quick. I need you to step outside. And so, so all the men st- stepped outside into the storm, and I was in a circle full of dads. I said, men, listen, I, I hope this doesn't happen. I-, I don't think it will, but we're under a tornado warning. And-, and listen, one might come this way, and if one drops out of the sky, here's what we have to do. We need to put all the women and kids, all the students in the middle of the room, and every one of us men, every one of us dads, we, we got to stand over them. we we got to position ourselves over top of them and protect them. And you know what was amazing? You know what every dad did? Absolutely, of course. We'll do it. We'll do it. I just remember thinking, that's dad. That, that's a good, that's a godly dad. So happy Father's Day to our dads out there. I want to say this, that man, 
We're two Sundays out from this right here, and I'm still super excited about what God has done. And I want to let you know behind the scenes, uh, we're working on site plans. In fact, we're working on very soon, now that harvesting is taking place of these fields, we're working very soon on a Sunday afternoon to get our entire church out there. It is a logistical nightmare, but we're going to do it. We're going to celebrate out there. And so I cannot wait for that. So just wanted to, to throw that out there and also want to say a word about camp. Uh, God still uses camp. Thank you for your generosity. Uh, 26 years ago, it was in that very same place where our students were, uh, where God began to get a hold of my heart, that God began that work in me, and it was so cool to see that work continue in, in your students. And just a side note here, no, this is not a screenshot from the movie Top Gun, but I'll tell you what this is. Uh, this is this is your staff. Couple dads with dad bods, couple more dads. This is your staff. Still, five years in, reigning champs on the basketball court and the volleyball court. So I just want to let y'all know. Only bragging rights I've got on the, on the day we celebrate dads. But man, camp was awesome. And you'll get to see some of that even uh, a little later on. So today, uh, we continue in our John series, picking up where Dominic, who did an incredible job last week, where he left off at the end of chapter 7. But as we head into chapter 7, verse 53, there is an anomaly here in the text. And I want to kind of point this out to you. If you have a King James version of the Bible, which this is one, uh, you see that we go straight in to verse 53 on through what is John chapter 8, verse 11. Uh, there's no brackets. There's no notes here. It's just a clean flow. But if you have a Bible translation like mine in the ESV, and this is my, my study Bible, um, you get some brackets. Brackets that state the earliest manuscripts do not include um, John chapter 7, 53 through John 8, 11. In fact, in other translations, the text, those verses aren't even there. They are put down in footnotes and you begin to go, what in the world is going on? What does this mean that this text was not found in the earliest manuscripts or copies of the New Testament? Oh, what's going on here? And so for the next few minutes, I'm going to attempt to simplify this, to address this just for a moment, because it gives me the opportunity uh, to celebrate with you how God has preserved his word throughout the generations. And there's some definitions we need to know as we approach this. Now, to be honest with you, it would be far easier just to skip this and just to say, you know, we're just going to go through it, or to actually skip all these passages, and to go on to John 8, 12, that second I am statement where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. But when you preach verse by verse, when you preach through a book of the Bible, you've got to address some things that are times difficult. And so we're going to do that. Let's begin with some definitions. You ready? Uh, number one, the definition of an autograph or the original manuscripts. So that means this. When we speak of an original manuscript, it means the original scroll or parchment or piece of paper that an ancient writer would put pen to and write down the work that they had prepared. And so it's the actual piece of paper they used, their parchment or scroll. It's the original text and work an ancient author would begin on. An original manuscript 
or autograph, but I want you to hear me. When it comes to ancient works, ancient books, there are zero original manuscripts that have survived. Zero from the ancient world that have survived. For instance, we don't have Homer's original Iliad. Only ancient copies or manuscripts. Caesar's Gallic Wars, no originals, just manuscript copies. No originals of classic authors like Plato or Socrates or Aristotle. We do not even have the original manuscripts or pieces of paper that William Shakespeare did his work on, only well-preserved copies. And likewise, there are no original manuscripts of any biblical book like the Gospel of John that has survived. You say, well, why are there no originals? Well, let's take a look at the New Testament. The authors of the New Testament wrote their Gospels or their letters, their narratives down on parchment or animal skins, leather scrolls, papyrus, or other forms of primitive paper. Hey, by the way, material that doesn't last forever, material that deteriorates, that begins to degrade. So what we do have are these handwritten copies as the way by which God preserved the original manuscripts throughout the ages. And by the way, they were a legitimate form of preservation in the ancient world. Now, let's begin to look at what we saw in the brackets in some of the translations. Let's talk about earliest manuscripts and what they mean. It speaks to these early copies of these original manuscripts for over 1,500 years. Listen to this. 1,500 years, the Bible was hand-copied by scribes in the ancient world who were tasked with preserving God's Word. Who, by the way, loved God and His Word and recognized their calling to preserve it. So, so why, why was it handwritten copies? Why do we have anything more than that? Well, by the way, Xerox wasn't founded until 1906. In fact, we don't get copy machines. There's no printing presses in the time of the New Testament. No digital copies had yet to be made. Everything was done by hand. That was the case until the advent of the printing press around the 15th and 16th centuries when everything changed, and I would argue what spurred on the Great Reformation. So up until then, the Bible was hand-copied by scribes who God used to preserve his word and his message for centuries. And so we begin to ask some questions. Okay, so do we have a lot of these manuscripts of the Bible? Are they, are they reliable? And the answer to that is absolutely yes. And I would make this argument that the Bible stands alone compared against any other ancient book in history. So how do, we, how do we play this out? Let me show you a pretty cool graphic. You ready? Um, let's take the work of Aristotle or Caesar or Socrates. And we were to stack maybe just the average Greek writer. Let, let's take Aristotle for example. And all the manuscripts that we have of Aristotle, if you were to stack them on the stage here today, they would be four feet tall. All right, these copies of his original work, these manuscripts, would be four feet tall. 
Now, let me just give you some bearings here. Um, 20 feet is the size of a two-story house. 305 feet, that is the height of the Statue of Liberty. 1,250 feet, that is the height of the Empire State Building. If you were to take all the manuscripts we have of the New Testament and you were to stack them on top of each other, they would reach a height of 5,280 feet. Guys, there is nothing like that in all the ancient world. A miracle how God would preserve his word and his message to us. So how do we stack up against books and antiquity, which I'm sure you have read this past week. You ready? Here they are. We have the Annals of Tacitus, where we find it was written in 110 AD, but the earliest manuscripts or copies we have of it don't come around till around 850 AD, meaning there's a 750-year gap of time from the moment Tacticus wrote them and we have the next copy available. That's a pretty big gap. Well, some less than that. Plato's Tetralogies. This around the third century BC is the earliest manuscript we have. The gap of time between his original and the first copies we have are a couple of hundred years. And we have about 238 of those manuscripts. You see Caesar's Gallic Wars. We have the first copy of that from the ninth century, which means there's a gap of 850 years from when Caesar wrote it and the first copy we have, and we realize that we have about 251 of those manuscripts. Hey, by the way, ain't nobody questioning if Caesar wrote those. Plato, those are his tetralogies, and there's not a whole lot of question there. Tacticus, they're there. There's his. Not a whole lot of debate there. How about Homer's Iliad? which is the only other work in antiquity that kind of uh, maybe comes close a little bit to its, its early manuscripts in the years. Watch this, Homer's Iliad around 800 B.C. The earliest manuscript we have is 415 B.C. So the difference of about 400 years from the time Homer penned his Iliad to the first copy that we have. And then you have this miracle that stands out above them all, and that is the New Testament. The earliest manuscripts we have is 125 AD. Within 30 years of the original writing of the Gospels and of the New Testament, man, we have these copies that have been preserved that God has made sure has been gotten to us even to this day. Guys, I'm telling you, there is no book like the Bible in all of history. What we see here is a testament of God miraculously preserving his word. Now here's some food for thought. This is our Constitution of the United States. As of past, this past September, it is, it is over 200 years old. This 236-year-old document can be found, and this is the original. This is the autograph. It can be found in the National Archives Museum. But let me tell you what's amazing about this document. It's back in the 1950s that they took this document because it began deteriorating. And they, they enclosed it into a glass encasement. They pumped that glass encasement with an inert helium gas. And now you have instruments, including lasers, that monitor the atmosphere inside that glass encasement to slow down the decaying, the deterioration of the Constitution of the United States. But as you can see, the ink is fading. 
The pages are deteriorating. This document will not last. This original will not last forever. Here's my question. What if we lost it? Hey, what if fire destroyed it? What if an enemy destroyed our original copy of the Constitution? Would we still know what the Constitution said? And you know the answer to that is? Yes. Of course we'll know what the Constitution said. Why? Because even from the beginning, there were copies made of the Constitution. And for generation, textbooks, articles, proceedings from the House of Representatives, the Senate, the presidency, the executive branch, and the Supreme Court have quoted the Constitution in part or in whole hundreds of thousands of times. So we can be sure if this original autograph is lost to us, that the Constitution and its message has been preserved. And if that's the case for the Constitution of the United States, how much more is that the case for the very Word of God? Here's a third definition. And by the way, hey ladies, wake up your husbands, okay? Here we go, here's the third definition. And that is textual criticism which is the academic field, the scientific field, or the discipline that is used to determine the original writings of ancient or classical works to which we do not have the original autographs or manuscripts. And what they do is they carefully compare and contrast the manuscripts we do have to determine what the original text said. So, for instance, I've got some really ancient scrolls that I bought from Amazon a couple days ago. And let's just say this, I were to write the gospel according to Anthony. Actually, Saint Anthony. Okay, and here's the gospel, you ready? Jesus saves. Hey, David, Zach, would you guys come up here? Brandon, if you're available. The gospel according to Anthony, Jesus saves. This is the original. This is the autograph. This is the original manuscript, right? But here's the deal. Man, this is important. And other churches want a copy of this gospel. And so what happens is, is David comes over and he says, Hey, listen, man, I've got a new church. And it's important that they get the gospel according to St. Anthony. They, they need to hear that Jesus saves. And so he commissioned some scribes, some literary geniuses. And what they do is he takes a scroll to them and he takes the original scroll and his scribes and his team begin to write out word for word what the gospel according to St. Anthony says. And then David kind of goes off and he brings this copy to his church. And then, and then about 30 years later, We have another interesting thing. Zach comes in. He's now the the, the worship pastor for First Baptist Church Bethlehem, right? And he says, you know what? As we begin this church, I need Anthony's gospel. And so what he does is, is he gets some type of parchment or scroll, and he goes over because he knows that David's church has it. And they begin with their scribes, their literary talent in the church, to copy word for word the gospel according to Anthony. And then here comes Brandon a hundred years later. And he's a great preacher, one of the early church fathers. And he knows this, for him to preach it right, he needs the gospel according to St. Anthony. 
that Jesus saves. And so we go back and he begins to quote from a copy he got from Zach's church, First Baptist Church of Bethlehem, right? And he begins to write down along with his scribes, word for word, the gospel according to St. Anthony. And you know what? We could do this all day. Man, Hunter, 200 years later, can meet up with the manuscript he found over there at Brandon's church. And you know what? Him and his literary team, they begin, they, they begin to write down the gospel verbatim. And then you have this where you go person after person. And we have all these, these manuscripts that are written down. And here's what textual criticism does. You ready? It says this. Although I don't have this one, the original, I have one really close to the time it was written, a manuscript, a copy. And you know what? 30 years later, there's, there's another fragment or a copy that we have found that, that says the exact same thing. And a, and a hundred years later, and a textual critic will go, will go, hey, look, I'm taking all these copies from the centuries. And what they do is, in a labor of love, guys, you're good, thank you so much. In a labor of love, They spread them out, and they compare and they contrast. Well, there was a comma here, but not a, a comma there when they, they hand wrote this. But the message is still the same. And by comparing and contrasting, they can tell exactly what was on that first gospel according to St. Anthony that Jesus saves and this is the miracle by which God preserved his word for us throughout antiquity. In fact, if you were to take those over 5,000 manuscripts we have of the New Testament and you were to compare and contrast all those handwritten copies, you know what you would find? That they are in agreement over 99.5% of the time. No other work or book and antiquity or to this day can even come close. I jotted this down. Even a lost, God-denying, Bible-hating critic cannot endeavor into textual criticism of the Bible and not walk away without appreciating the miracle, appreciating the miracle of its preservation through the centuries. There's just no other book like it. I love what Sir Frederick Kenyon said. He is a foremost scholar on the New Testament, on manuscripts and textual criticism. About a century ago, he said this, the Christian can take the whole Bible in his hand and say without fear or hesitation that he holds in it the true word of God handed out without essential loss from generation to generation throughout the centuries. Anthony, why in the world did you just share all that with us? Because there's brackets and there's footnotes. There's some people who say John 7, 53 through John 8, 11 shouldn't be in the Bible. While it rings true, it probably shouldn't be in the Gospel of John. And, and there's a little bit of a debate going out there. Why are there warning messages? Well, here's the deal. In the earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of John, we don't find John 7, 53 through John 8, 11. Most of the early church fathers don't talk about it. We don't start seeing uh, this story appear in the Gospel of John consistently until the 400s or the 5th century. There's some manuscripts we found where there's a large gap 
Right after John 7.52 and right before John 8.12, I mean, it looks like something should have been there. And you might ask me, Anthony, what is going on there? And I, I've got to tell you, I just, I don't know. There is great work and scholarship on both sides, really godly people on both sides of this argument. And I want you to hear me. I can't settle that debate this morning. I need three hours of your time that you're not willing to give on Father's Day. But here's what we want to do. I want us this morning for a few minutes to take off the brackets from the text. I want to elevate this text from the footnotes, if, if it's in the footnotes of your Bible. And I want to put it front and center. And I want to see an illustration of Jesus' grace and forgiveness through an encounter he has with a woman who's caught in adultery. For those of you who go, oh, I don't know, I think I believe the brackets. Well, here's some important questions about the passage. Does this text contradict any biblical truth or doctrine? Hear me, church, it does not. Does it corroborate other scriptures pertaining to Jesus? Oh, yes, it does. Is there conclusive evidence that this passage doesn't belong here? No, there is not. Does this text match the character and ministry of Jesus? Yes, it most certainly does. Does the message connect well with surrounding texts? Yes. Does it come across like something John would write and include in his gospel? The answer is yes. So I joined the likes of someone like Tim Keller, who recently passed away. He says the story of the woman caught in adultery is found in John 7, 53 to 8, 11. Beautifully captures Jesus' compassion and his invitation to experience grace and transformation. While the textual evidence may present some challenges, its message and theology are entirely consistent with the gospel narratives. This passage reminds us that Jesus is the one who offers forgiveness and new life to all who seek him. It rightly belongs in the Bible as a testament to God's love. And mercy. And so with that being said, let's read without brackets and outside of the footnotes. John chapter 7, beginning in verse 53. Then they all went home. They're at the Feast of Tabernacles, and the night has come. They all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. In verse 2, at dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. Hey, in those days, the preacher would sit down, and everybody else would stand up. I like that. Some of y'all would be hard to fall asleep standing up. And so I, I like that. We may bring that back. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, a bunch of troublemakers in this scene, brought in a woman caught in adultery. I've got a lot of issues with this caught statement. It says it twice. They made her stand before the group as this public humiliation and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. There it is for the second time. One in verse 3, one in verse 4. She has been caught goes on and says, and the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Hey, Jesus, what do you think about that? What do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have basis for accusing Jesus. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Hey, by the way, do you know that this is the only time we ever see Jesus in the context of writing is in this text? Do you know what he wrote? Me either. Hey, when I get to heaven, man, once I, man, I love on him, probably in a worship service for about 5,000 years, I'm going to sit with him one day and go, hey, hey, listen, real quick, what'd you write down? What, 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 what'd you write down in the sand there? I, I, I need to know. But here's the deal. We don't know. And the Bible's okay with that. But what we're beginning to see here in this passage 
is a setup, what seems to be a setup. Not only are the religious leaders trying to set Jesus up and say something, to say something that will condemn him, but this woman seems to have been set up as well. So let's begin with the woman. She has been caught, and there seems to be little debate here. She was guilty. Twice it is mentioned she was caught, and her sin is grievous. It's adultery. And adultery really lines up there with idolatry and murder in the Old Testament as these, these grievous violations of God's law. And the question is, why, why is it seen so bad? Guys, listen to me. Adultery destroys everybody it touches. Everybody. Whether you are the adulterer or you're the victim of adultery, it, it destroys everyone. And it hurts so deeply and she's gotten herself into some big sin in fact in leviticus 20 verse 10 deuteronomy 22 22 the bible states that adultery which is really any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage is punishable by the electric chair it is punishable by death now i want us to be careful here when we read this text I want you to notice that Jesus at no point minimizes her sin. Yet he takes what is a miscarriage of justice to maximize his grace. And so a problem I have is, how'd they catch her? Hey, guys, listen. This is relaying that they caught her in the act of committing adultery. Awkward, right? It's just, man, how'd he, how'd he catch her? And if you did catch her, Here's my question. Where's the man? Hey, it takes two to tango, right? Where is he? If they caught her, they would have caught him as well. Leviticus 20, 10, other places in Scripture, clearly shows us that God shows no partiality, and yet they do. God does not prefer the rich over the poor or a man over a woman Partiality is a sin, and these men are violating the very law of Moses. They are condemning this woman for breaking. Also under the law of Moses, she's afforded the right to a trial under the law. But what we have here in John chapter 7 and John chapter 8 is a witch hunt, is a mob mentality setting her up to set Jesus up. So we have conspiracy. We have partiality. And thus we have injustice at play. In the law, the death penalty for adultery had high standards. Trust me, there were not a lot of people put to death for adultery. Why? Because it was so rampant. Who would be left in that day? There was a high standard. Before a person could be killed or executed for their sin, two witnesses, listen, had to witness the sin first hand and their testimony under cross-examination could not differ had to be exactly the same or a person could not be executed as you can imagine not a lot of people died because of adultery for it was nearly impossible for two witnesses to catch a man and a woman in the act of adultery itself the bar was set high. In fact, in the Mishnah, which is the oral traditions of the Jewish people, they considered that if a court had executed one person over a matter of seven years, they considered that court to be a slaughterhouse. It was just nearly impossible 
to execute an adultery case. And yet we find a group of religious men advocating for it to be done immediately. Without question, she was set up so they could set up Jesus. This is unjust. Not only had this woman's sin been brought to light, but the hypocrisy of these men and their sin is brought to light as well. Their attempt to set a trap for Jesus would prove to be their undoing and not his. And the trap was simple. You ready? Get Jesus to either kill the woman or to kill the law. Danged if you do. Danged if you don't. And either way, they thought that they had him. But here's the deal. Jesus wouldn't fall for it, nor would he fall into the trap. They said, you see, Jesus is perfectly just and perfectly compassionate. In fact, we must note that nowhere in the text does Jesus answer these men's question. Hey, Jesus, what do you think about this? What do you say? At no point does he answer their question. He merely confronts their hypocrisy, which he can't stomach. He doesn't tell them, hey, put your stones down. And he doesn't say, go ahead and kill her. Watch this in verse 7. When they kept on questioning him, remember at this time he's riding in the dust. When they kept on questioning, Jesus stands up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he gets back down in the dirt and begins to play again. Begins to ride again. The Bible tells us. You know what Jesus does here in a masterful way? He disarms the hypocrites and dismantles this death penalty case against the woman. For the, the sin and hypocrisy of the men who accused her delegitimized their ability to act as the judge and the jury and the executioner against her. The case must be dropped. But I think of her. I, I wrote this down because I thought, what is she doing as Jesus writes in the dirt and as these men stand with stones in their hand ready to kill her? I can imagine she buries her head into her chest, covering the tops of her head with her hands, bracing for the blows of stones that will be thrown at her. She, she must have been trembling and terrified. What would the pain be like when that first stone hit its mark? She must have been worried about hearing, feeling those blows. How long will it take for me to die? But instead of feeling the blow, she hears a thud. It was not the sound of a stone striking her head. Rather, it was a stone falling to the ground. I, I can imagine her saying, did they miss? Were they just, just off target? And then another thud would soon follow, and then another. Soon she would be able and begin to see and breathe in the dust that crept its way behind her arms and hands that she used for a defense. And little did she know the only defense she needed that day was Jesus. Verse 9, it says this. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left. I love that, the older ones first. You know what that tells you? The older you get... You get it. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left. 
with the woman still standing there, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. In some of your translations, it says, Go and sin no more. Without witnesses there, the case is dismissed. And yet her sin still remains. But this is a story of the guilty being met with grace, a tale of the hypocrites who are halted in their hypocrisy, an encounter of condemnation that was met with compassion, a confrontation with the law that gave way to love. Remember the early passage of John we've already studied in John three seventeen. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. I love what Tim Keller said of this text. He said, there's two things that happen. Jesus disturbs the comfortable, and then he comforts the disturbed. He disturbs the comfortable, those religious hypocrites. And yet he comforts the disturbed, a woman caught in her sin. But how can she stand there guilty, yet not condemned by Jesus? Can I tell you what I think Jesus is saying to her in this passage? I don't condemn you because I will be condemned for you. According to the law, the stones ought to be thrown at you, but instead I will step in front of you and those stones will hit me. You deserve to die in your sins but I will die for your sins instead. It will not be your blood that will fall to the ground, but mine. For Jesus knew something she didn't. It would be his love, not the law that would save her from her sin. We're reminded in Scripture in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Did you ever think that Jesus was the only one there who could have thrown the stone? Because he was the only one without sin. And when he had the right to throw the stone, he didn't. He chose not to. Rather, he invited her into his grace and forgiveness, which would bring about her a, transfer, a transformed life. When he would say, go and sin no more. Remember Romans 8, 1, you ready? That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That was the relationship Jesus offered. And so two challenges as we close. Number one, hey, drop your stones. Drop your stones. Be careful how passionately you demand the law for other people's sins while enjoying his grace for your own. Church, drop your stones and bring her to her Savior. And here's the second challenge. We want to stop, right? When Jesus says, hey, where are your accusers? When they're gone? Well, neither do I condemn you. You are sent, connect church, have a great Sunday. No, no, no. But listen to what Jesus says. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. Drop 
your stones and drop your sin. Go and sin no more. Um, before the students got there, uh, Aaron and the kids and I, we always go down a little bit early for camp and, and spend some time together. I was out at the beach, and uh, I had all four of my kids on me at the sandbar. So we had to go through a little deep water, and, and literally I had one kid hanging off my back. I had one on my left arm, one on my right arm, and one hanging onto a love handle. That's how we were out at the sandbar. And we were looking down this beautiful, clear water, and I saw a stone down near my feet that was not an ocean stone. I, I could tell it wasn't. I was like, man, what in the world is this doing out here? So, so I threw the kids in the ocean for a second. I got down, got the stone, and thankfully all of them came back. And, and I picked it up, and I was like, what in the world is this rock doing out in the ocean? I looked it over, and then we noticed there was writing on it. And so we kind of wiped away some of the sand and water, and the girls were like, hey, what's that? What does what 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 it say? Oh, one second, let me, let me see here. And, and, and I began to read it, and there were three words on the stone. Faker, liar, and smoker. I went, what in the world kind of stone is this? And I, I stood out in the ocean, I was reminded of Micah chapter 7, verse 19, where the Bible says that he will again have compassion on us. He'll subdue our iniquities or our sin, and you will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. And here was a teenager from the camp who had taken a stone and wrote, and by the way, it's a high school girl, without question. I could tell. Who written down her sins on this stone and had done what Micah chapter 7 verse 19 had said to do. She'd taken it and she'd cast it into the depth of God's sea of forgetfulness. Man, it really struck a chord with me because here was a precious young lady and no doubt a youth pastor had stood before her the night before and said, write down your sins and cast them into the depth of God's sea of forgetfulness. And she went out to the ocean to do just that. And I'd found it. Maybe this is the type of stones we need to start throwing in the church. Stones with not somebody else's sin on them but mine. And instead of casting them at somebody else, maybe it's time that we start throwing this stone into the sea of God's forgetfulness where he then puts a sign that says, no fishing allowed. Do you know how ridiculous it would have been if I picked up this stone and then I noticed some teenage girl swimming around on the sandbar looking for it? Here she had casted her sins in the sea of God's forgetfulness. She wanted them back. And so she's out there swimming and fishing for it. Man, it's ridiculous she wouldn't have done it. And you know what? Maybe, just maybe, that's the picture we ought to be left with today. There are some sins that we cast in the depth of God's sea of forgetfulness. And sometimes, like children, we try to go back to them. We miss them. We try to pick them up again. Now, there needs to be some new stones being thrown in the church today. And that's the stones of our sin into his sea of forgetfulness. I watched our students do this. I use it as an illustration. 
Well, on the last night, as I told you, there were tornadoes all around, uh, terrible storms out there. We were not going to send them to the ocean to cast their stones. And so all of your pastors went and took every one of their, their stones. And I told them to find seashells if you had to. And this was the beginning of the pile that grew through the night. In church, we, we got a chance to throw their stones and their sin into the ocean. Maybe that's the beautiful picture of what the church ought to be. For the woman caught in adultery, instead of stoning her, sending her to Jesus, bringing her to Jesus, and then writing our sins on a stone, throwing them in the midst of God's sea of forgetfulness and walking in the very freedom we have in Christ. For there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Thank you again for checking out our podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date on our services. If you'd like to give to support our ministry, you can do that at our website. That's connectchurchpf.com. Hope you enjoyed and have a great week.